you're listening to Terrific City, and if you're one of our supporters making a monthly contribution, we'd like to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. By signing up as a monthly supporter, you help us make sure we can keep bringing you this show. That's right. We have some more seasons of Terrific City in the works, but we can only bring them to you, our listeners, with the support of you, our listeners. And by support, we mean cash. Give us your cash or a reasonable digital facsimile thereof at terrific.city. And we so hope you enjoy the show. Hey, that's terrific. Terrific. Just terrific. They're terrific. That's terrific. Really terrific. This is terrific stuff. Terrific. A1 terrific. That's not so terrific. You feel terrific afterwards. I'm Melissa Girogrant. And I'm Cheyenne Picardo. And this is Terrific City, a podcast on the city and screen life of 1970s America. On this show, it's a very special gay episode of The Deuce. We talk to Mireille Miller-Young, author of A Taste for Brown Sugar, Black Women and Pornography, all about the black women performers of porn's golden age. And we revisit the made-for-TV movie that is more or less the deuce if it were really made in 1975, Hustling, dramatizing the reporting of journalist Gail Shee. Stick around. Maybe it's better that way If Papa were here, I'm sure he'd tell her This week on The Deuce, it was... I don't know how to call it, a special gay episode, it seems to be <laughs> the in big gay episode with the sort of movie of the week, teen runaway movie, which we're going to talk about some later. We get everybody hooking up, one, across the board, but mm-hmm. we also get two guys and two women hooking up with each other, and a very casual and I think actually quite off-putting reference to Where were we working ball. before this? I was in Brooklyn, just joined on Smith Street. Bag bar in South Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> And before that, I worked both weekend shifts at the Stonewall. I know you've heard of that. Stonewall? Come on, man. Even you were going to remember a bunch of queers rioting three nights in a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The village, I remember. Yes. Yeah. What the fuck happened with that? One too many raids. Yeah, it was something, all right. All right. Yeah. The new beginnings. I don't know. I, I Was there a sticky note on the wall in the writer's room that said, like, oh, shit, we weren't gay enough. Let's just do it all in this episode? <laughs> yeah, must hit these points. Must hit these points in whatever way possible, stuffed into whatever corner and crevice possible. And, yeah, Stonewall, Fire Island. Like, you know, let's name it, let's hit it. But that wasn't the only thing that they were doing that I felt was kind of, like, attacking cliches in ways that I wasn't usually familiar, like, seeing on a show of this caliber. But it did definitely feel like we're going to hit every point that every other sex work narrative has not hit, but we're not going to take much care in how we do it. Like the two women who, the two sex workers who are in a relationship, or I don't know, at least we don't know yet. We barely know anything about them. All we know about them is they're in bed together. And the way we learn this information is one is laying on her back, um, having a good time. And the camera slowly uh, shows us that underneath the sheets, there is another woman. Like it just, it not only in, in the content, but also in form that just felt like the most cliched way to present that those two characters. Right, and also very two-dimensional. Like, And I'm thinking of comparing it to a person who's also gotten relatively limited screen time, Big Mike, 
who we got introduced to last episode, but who I feel his very few moments spoke a thousand words. These are the gay sex workers. These are the, like, as opposed to much more of their backstory than that. We haven't really gotten much at all, um, except for a couple of lines in the uh, menstruation scene, like how to avoid the diner scene where they're talking about um, being on their periods and how to use a sponge so that that doesn't get in the way of work, which is totally a real thing. If we had known any other information about these two sex workers, we would be able to maybe have like an a emotional name connection to them. For one half yeah. of them? I don't even know yeah. what the name is. Yeah. I don't know. And and on the one hand, you can imagine it as like, oh, like a me- the lead into the scene is one of their pimps being like, oh, where are they? Because they're on their own time to the point that one of them has to, in perhaps the first appearance of money that one of them has earned, like out of a tattered envelope comes some cash that is going to be, they're paying for their own ability to hook up with each other, in other words. And these are not characters that we you know, have spent enough time with to even understand, like, is this the first time they've done this? Is this something they do all the time when they're killing time? Like, if this were candy, if this were even thunder thighs, right? we would know a little bit more about the context for the sex that they're having. It just feels very silly and girl on girl. Sometimes things that may be revolutionary to some people feel like they've been done before to me. I've definitely seen the portrayal of the idea that sex workers hook up with each other, um, definitely in kind of like a queer context. Um, I've seen that portrayed in most things that are done by people who have actually discussed sex work with sex workers. So to me, it feels like putting a flag on something in a not particularly nuanced way. But I guess to most people, this might actually seem somewhat revolutionary. Like it's like they knew they had the information. Yeah. Like in the very awkward off-putting Stonewall scene where Vinny is apparently misgendering one of the patrons of his bar. You had one of yours in here right off the bat, opening night. Pretty motherfucker. Looked like you should be at the opera or something. She. Mm Mm-mm. It was a he. You could see the fucking Adam's apple bouncing. I mean to say Dora prefers she. Dora? That's the name? Okay, Dora. She is fucking great. With the fucking lipstick and the pumps. I mean, shit like that makes this place crackle. A little this, a little that. It's New York, you know, people want to be surprised, you know? Yeah. You know, th- this is somewhere where I worry that we are bringing our mid-2010s. Are we getting the temporal hubris problem? Well, you know, here's the thing, and this is, you know, this is a history that I think is told through very kind of, you know, mainstream gay glasses, yeah. where, you know, it's very easy to sort of flatten real life gay people into sort of, you know, a movie of the week version of them. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, there was there was diversity between, you know, people who were doing drag, who were trans, there were people who were doing drag who weren't trans. Who were not trans, like, yeah. Even just the category of trans in that moment is different than the category of trans in this moment. Uh, for folks who want to know much more about this period through that lens, I would highly recommend the podcast One from the Vaults by Morgan M. Page, which does a fantastic job of sort of parsing out the different ways that gender and sexuality and drag in New York in particular are expressed in this moment. And and I, again, it felt like another one of those, like you heard this, you knew that this was a thing that you could bring to the show, but you didn't do it in a really holistic or real way. Well, they, well for that thing, it's kind of butting up against what I feel is kind of a different cliche, but one that will come up later in our homework section, which is the idea of the very self-loathing, self-hating, hiding from the sun kind of, you know, gay man, which again is probably very much rooted in a more than just a kernel of truth, but I felt was, it felt very inelegant. You had an opportunity here 
across eight episodes to interweave gay and even trans characters, if that's something that they're trying to do here, it's not entirely clear, in a way that suited the broader narrative, right? Mm -hmm. In the way that we know much more about Candy's life than we do about the lives of these characters who are in same-sex relationships. Right. And just that imbalance says something about how little regard they have for those characters in the context of the larger show. Or that the writers themselves actually have internalized, that's the word, they have internalized the horiarchy and the characters in the show have not in that we are seeing the home of the independent, the money that the independent gets, and we're not seeing the payouts of the sex workers um, who are not independent. We are not seeing the home environment until we get to Ruby. When the show wants to give us details quickly about a character that really flesh them out, they are capable of doing it, um, but it's just not happening in an even way. We have Ruby, who Candy goes to hang out with in her apartment. They have a very cute scene together that's also very touching talk, you know ranging from talking about stupid things that clients give you that you feel like you have to bring home even though you don't like them um or the gift very real very very real very real and a, and a sex worker that they that they uh have lost um and they talk about some of her her things that are left behind mm. smells like her what's that Jeanette. <laughs> Did you bathe in it? Bathe, do shiny shoes. Lord, the girl couldn't get enough. In a year, she left about a case of it from Rexall. She could stick a bottle up her cooch in the time to take you to Blake. It slipped out once. She was banned for life from the store on 42nd and Broadway. Mm. I never saw Nikki without her suede. Why wasn't she wearing it? That day was hot as fuck. 90 degrees after midnight. That was the last summer. Feels longer. And we have this other scene with a character who we later learn is named Frank, but because we already have a Frankie, that Frankie, James Franco, decides that he's gonna call this guy Black Frank. With his permission. Um, with his permission, um, but the two of them are in in Frank's house or trailer or something. It's the back There's of American... a windowless van. It is. It is. Yeah. A, it is definitely a modified van. Big Mike said you was cool. What you looking for? I got handguns, modified shotguns, hand grenades. Just a gun. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what I'm, I'm looking for. So, uh, what, what you use in Vietnam? I lugged an M16 through the boonies for 12 and a wake up. That ain't practical for you. That scene is dynamite, and because that scene is handled so well, it makes so many of the other scenes seem so awkward. You said that it feels like you know the writers actually don't have the respect and regard right. for the characters right. that you see well, the characters have. I don't know what it is because after the sh after this episode airs, like you know they have the post show wrap up where they talk about like some sort of thing that they want to explain about the show and that the wrap up for this week was all about how we have women in the writers rooms and all this kind of stuff and I'm like well you might have women in the writers rooms but are a are they the right women like are they people who actually can speak to this and b who's giving them the information is there a game of telephone happening where they're being given a piece of information to stuff into the script and they have to figure out a way to do it and 
I mean, again, I expect more from the people who created The Wire. I expect more from the people who bring us shows on HBO because other shows on HBO have been so phenomenal at that. Like The Sopranos is a great a great example where you get minute little pieces of information about every character over the course of the entire arc of the show, not all in one show. This is only made worse by the fact that the showrunners continue to give interviews where it feels like they are talking about a different show altogether. And I say this maybe to give the writers a little space to breathe because I don't actually know if you have a showrunner who believes as David Simon has been saying, as well as other uh, other producers involved with the show, not Maggie Gyllenhaal so much, but the guys, um, saying that this show, um, on the one hand, isn't moralizing about porn, just as The Wire wasn't moralizing about drugs, but on the other hand, porn has made our society far more misogynist than it ever was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if that's what you think your show is about, that is a moral judgment. Let's yeah. start there. Um, but also, I don't experience the show that way. I think what they are doing in this kind of PR gambit is saying to the viewer, um, just as you know, a period piece sort of can let viewers off the hook, as mm-hmm. we've discussed, I feel like the marketing is also saying like, we've already decided where this turns up. So you all don't have to feel a responsibility to think any differently about the world that you live in now and what sex work looks like in the world that we live in now because we've already told you the story. The story is sex work equals misogyny equals bad. Right. You've already sort of foreclosed any possibility that your show is going to to, to do anything with that. It just feels like you're creating a dead end for yourself. Mm-hmm. And then the show itself isn't even that. I don't I don't know what's going on with that. It feels disingenuous and maybe even strategic on their part to to make the show sound like it's more anti-porn than it really is. The following review by Roger Ebert appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times on March 6, 1973. Deep Throat, No Star Rating, March 6, 1973. There are, I have been told, 17 scenes of explicit sex in the movie Deep Throat. I did not count them myself. I saw the movie, but I forgot to start counting until too late. Harold, who is a bartender in the Old Town area, counted them on Friday afternoon, and we will have to take his word. Harold is not often mistaken in these matters. He has a keen eye and a good memory. Harold had just finished counting the 17 scenes on Friday afternoon when seven marked squad cars and four unmarked squad cars pulled up on Armitage in front of the town theater, which is showing Deep Throat. This concentration of law enforcement vehicles created a gaper's block in both directions on Armitage and also slowed traffic on Clark Street and Lincoln Avenue. I'm not quite sure why such a massive hit force was necessary. Smaller numbers of officers have successfully flushed killers from attics and directed the traffic at Soldier Field after the Bears game. No matter, they blew the whistle and most of the patrons of the theater left quietly, keeping their hat brims low and their collars turned up for it was a chilly afternoon. The police, alas, neglected to obtain the necessary papers before making their raid. And so a federal judge ruled on Saturday that the town could continue to show deep throat. I exercised my constitutional right to see the movie on Sunday afternoon and felt only a little twinge of nostalgia as I entered the theater. In its balmier days, the town showed Orson Welles' Falstaff, Louis Bunuel's The Exterminating Angel, and Babette, Brigitte, 4824-36, Bardot, Striptease Pantomime to Melancholy Baby, all three works of art superior, I would say, to Deep Throat. The movie became pornographic chic in New York before it was busted. Mike Nichols told Truman Capote he shouldn't miss it, and then the word just sort of got around. 
This is the first stag film to see with a date. There were a lot of couples in the audience Sunday afternoon. Most of them, I thought, left the theater looking a little grim. It's all very well and good for Linda Lovelace, the star of the movie, to advocate sexual freedom. But the energy she brings to her role is less awesome than discouraging. If you have to work this hard at sexual freedom, maybe it isn't worth the effort. Anyway, to continue our consumer's report, the 17 scenes take place in a movie 62 minutes long. Allowing for the six minutes devoted to Linda Lovelace driving around Miami while the credits roll past, and taking out the swimming pool scene, the fireworks, and the launching at Cape Kennedy, this leaves an average of 2.9 minutes per act, which is considerably less than Xaviera Hollander is recommending these days in her penthouse column. On the other hand, the cost is only 33.6 cents per sex scene, while you have to put six quarters in the machine to see a whole movie in the arcades on South State Street. Sounds like a bargain until you realize that if Gone with the Wind were exhibited at the same cost per minute as Deep Throat, it would cost you $36.72 for tickets for yourself and your date. Please welcome to Terrific City, Mireille Miller-Young. Mireille Miller-Young, PhD, is Associate Professor of Feminist Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her research explores race, gender, and sexuality in visual culture and sex industries in the United States. She's the author of A Taste for Brown Sugar, Black Women, Sex Work, and Pornography, which examines African-American women's representation and labor in pornographic media. In addition, she's an editor of The Feminist Porn Book, The Politics of Producing Pleasure, and she has written essays for The New York Times, Feminist Theory, Color Lines, and Spread, among other publications. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I just want to just say that, you know, I love the concept for this podcast and you know I enjoyed doing the research for this era so much because I'm so nostalgic. I grew up in New York City in the Lower East Side and I spent a lot of time cutting school <laughs> in middle mm -hmm. school. <laughs> That's I, where we record the show is on the Lower East Side. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes. Well there you go. I'm from that neighborhood. I grew up Amazing. and ever since I was 10 years old my mom let me go wherever I wanted in the city. I was riding the trains and buses you know, at 10, 11, 12. And I went to high, um, no, middle school in Harlem, East Harlem. And I had to commute a lot. And it was an awful school. And I got bullied. So I actually sometimes didn't go to school. <laughs> I would go mm -hmm. to the museums. I'd go to the Met and pretend I was an art student. And I'd go, um, you know, so that truant officers wouldn't get me. But I'd also, like, go to 42nd Street because I thought it was so interesting. And nobody would ask questions if you went to the movies there. And they had, you know, at the time, regular movies alongside all the old porn theaters. Um, now, I have to preface this and I say in the preface of my book actually that I've been a porn nerd since I was really little and um, my friend who lived upstairs in my building her stepfather had an incredible collection of playboys and penthouse magazines and uh, so I was looking at those from a very young age and we also had something in Manhattan called on Manhattan cable it was unique to Manhattan the other boroughs didn't have it but Channel J and Channel oh, J yeah. had uh, Robin Bird's show and it had interludes after midnight the new talk show and many 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 other kind of sex shows and things and so my mom who worked the 4 to 12 shift didn't get home till about 1 so I often spent a lot of time watching <laughs> 
yeah. sex in that era. So I was huge, hugely interested in those kind of old theaters. And then I'd also say that I was really excited to begin a private collection of my own of Players Magazine um, in the 70s. And I think that that's also an understudied um you know, really important object of analysis. It, it kind of modeled itself as a black playboy. Um, it had a really short longevity as that. It went into a kind of really non-political um, pictorial magazine in the late 70s. But at the time uh, it started, it had a female editor, a black woman editor, and it was really trying to be a progressive site for um, political commentary, <laughs> and people did read the articles, yeah. um, and and pictorials of people like Pam Greer. And so I think that um, there's just rare pieces of Black culture that that do that work of, of combining the intellectual with the kind of obscene sexual culture um, in exciting ways. And I wish that we had more um, to discover. I want you to talk about um, this idea of, of soul porn, um, which is sort of the unique representation or unique to this era anyway, of black sexuality in not just porn, but um, but also in, in black exploitation and other kinds of uh, genre film. Um, it seems like the, the way that you analyze it is that soul porn is a way of capitalizing on a particular expression of black identity and that in pornography, soul is it's being expressed in this way that might be accurate, but it might also be sort of an appropriation. And you talk about this one film in particular, Lila, um, and how that plays out in that film. So let's let's get into Lila and, and talk about um, soul porn through Lila. I was really happy to discover this film. I was trying to find, um, you know, a film during from that era that was really a narrative film because so much of the um, material that Black people were part of are the kind of short loops that are the legacy of the the uh, stag film era. You know that kind of um, the the eight and sixteen millimeter um, films that would be shown in an earlier era in men's clubs, fraternal orders, private showings. You know there are all these unnamed actors that were involved in that in this kind of side economy of quick quick films that were made easily and kind of underground. Um, but the theatrical movies that, um, you know, were really trying to compete for a minute with Hollywood and really trying to imagine themselves as being part of a new Hollywood that might um, go with the sexual revolution instead of against it, which is where we're at now and what happened, right? Um, and I think Lila is a really interesting film because for me, yeah, what I was getting at with this concept of soul porn is that I think at the time with this kind of, um, you know, the end of the 60s had a crisis in the civil rights movement with the assassination of Martin Luther King and the rise of more a radical segment of activists that were represented by um, the Black Panthers, the Black Power movement. And there was a, a sentiment of real possibility at the same time of real heartache at the ongoing black death that um, was incited by the state and this really kind of repressive situation of, you know, ongoing economic inequality. I mean, Martin Luther King, you know, died when he was going to, um, you know, a labor 
um, action for uh, sanitation workers. And we're starting to talk a lot about economic um, issues. And so, you know, the 70s, and particularly in places like New York, um, you know, it was a really kind of bleak time economically, hence so many people trying to make money in these side economies and the interesting kind of explosion of this um, sexual Disneyland that <laughs> occurred in, in uh, 42nd Street. It um, was an easy kind of cash economy, especially for people, you know, involved with the mob and who wanted cash <laughs> um, to be very easy. And films were another way for people to kind of um, launder money and make money easily. Um, and it has this kind of, um, Lila has this kind of sentiment of exploration in terms of wanting to think about, you know, the kind of radicalness that is, um, you know, brought to mind by uh, the black freedom struggle and this kind of new expression of black agency, particularly masculinity, um, but also black femininity. And this is something that, you know, it's really interesting that in tandem with figures like Ella Baker, who was, um, you know, an amazing uh, activist in the face of black women's, you know, um, strength and a kind of embodiment of um, sacrifice during the civil rights movement, her, Rosa Parks, many, many others. We also had this kind of sexualized image of other kinds of black women who were breaking down barriers, like Jeannie Bell and Jennifer Jackson, who were the first Playboy models. And who started a whole movement in black magazines like Jet Magazine and the rise of magazines like Players um, to center black women as um, objects of beauty and desire and that this became also part of the kind of aesthetic and artistic and cultural expression of the black power movement. And so soul porn is trying to capture these simultaneous forces that are happening in the Black experience, which is the kind of political mobilization, um, a, a mobilization that really reaches into economic frontiers and gender frontiers and, and is making really um, important critiques of whiteness and white spaces, white property, issues of safety, issues of autonomy. Um, and at the same time, we have this kind of cultural movement that's we see in music and we see in art and we see in pornographic representations at the time of black people also wanting to see themselves as desirable and desiring and to have a kind of central role in you know an erotic culture and to have their own erotic culture now i think lila is really interesting because it captures this whole um, possibility at the same time that it shows the other side of soul porn which is this cultural appropriation um, where white producers were really taking advantage <laughs> of this fascination and interest um, with black people and kind of making gestures towards those kind of representations, but at the same time not going far enough. Um, still staying comfortably within this kind of masculinity, um, hyper-masculinity um, 
of of black men as a particular fascination at the expense of of black women um still treating um you know the women and the roles as very much other so Lila is supposed to be a film about a black women a black woman coming to terms with her own sexual desires and in the end though like we hardly know anything about her and she's very much displaced by the um title character Arlo who's um, kind of almost a black pimp and so I think it's really interesting in this time because um, black pimps were so important to the American fascination um, and they seem to represent this kind of danger that almost black power activists did you know um, like Huey Newton and uh, George Jackson and others and but they had the sexual aspect right um, and black men also found black pimps to be heroic because they were the ultimate kind of trickster figures and outsiders who, um, you know, are trying to navigate the spaces of criminalization and punishment, um, but do so in ways that are really kind of resilient and stylish and attractive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they have money, they have, you know, they right. have mobility in the world that, that other folks might not have. Exactly. And they're doing it, you know, by using capitalism in a way, uh, you know, making themselves into um, self-styled entrepreneurs in a way that you know, feels like it escapes the system, although it's very much part of it, um, you know, in a way that's, that's much more glamorous and exciting and feels more um, independent, you know, than working in a factory for sure. And certainly those jobs and factories and other, you know, um, blue collar jobs that black men had felt a sense of manhood and pride about were the ones that were being erased during that time in the 50s, uh, 60s and 70s as factory after factory closes due to, you know, the rise of neoliberal trade agreements. Black men who had found a great sense of identity working at Firestone or, um, you know, making tires or Ford or um, these other kind of industrial jobs that, that allowed people to create different senses of masculinity and patriarchal kind of um, modeling of the family um, disappear. And there's a real crisis in black masculinity because of the, the powerlessness that people feel economically. And of course, the, the ways in which they're very much imperiled by, um, you know, uh, state violence. Um, so I think that, you know, there's a lot of good reasons why the pimp as a figure becomes um, so central, in fact, to even displace a black woman as the object of, you know, who would normally be the object of, of interest in a pornographic film, um, that it becomes about, you know, the black man. But I think that it's also really interesting because it combines this wonderful um, musical score that was made for the film. Um, um, by a drummer who was widely known in the soul um, world, um, Bernard Pretty, uh, Purdy, and he's actually seen in the film uh, in the beginning and the end, um, playing drums and singing the title song Lila as a woman dances around him in a kind of burlesque fashion. Um, and that centrality of like the sound of blackness and the kind of the kind of sound of soul music at that time really excited people, brought people together and made people think of, you know, interestingly, sexual possibility. I mean, it really was um, a moment when soul was, you know, evolving into disco, which many people have thought that disco was just this kind of vapid escapism from, um, you know, 
real issues at the time, but, um, you know, why does, you know, music about um, protest and, and um, community and love give way to music about pleasure and dance and sex, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think I mean, that's, that's the, the time, right? That's it's the, the 60s time. giving way to the 70s. Exactly. And it's this, this bigger shift. To have black sexuality represented in, in porn in a moment where the culture is deeply fixated on the idea of the black pimp and maybe secondary to that, the sort of illicit sexuality of black women. As we get into sort of the more golden age uh, of porn and get more features like Lila, you talk about performers like Desiree West, um, who is one of the few performers that we still know about and have access to some of her work. Um, what was that path like for people who were sort of making that transition as, as the porn industry itself grew and opened up avenues for them to get more work? It, what's interesting too is that Desiree West, I, I analyze her in the book. I think she's such an interesting person. And I, I interviewed her and I talked to her, but she didn't want to be actually really formally part of the project. She really um, felt um, hurt by her career and kind of didn't want to revisit it. Like the conversation we had was, mm-hmm. was painful for her. Um, she felt really... Um, misrepresented and taken advantage of um, in the industry and and I thought that was really um, unfortunate because I told her you know I think that she also was very iconic and representative for um, uh, what seemed to be you know a great sense of you know sexual um, power that she exhibited in her in her work um, and she said she said you know it actually was there were actually was um, a bit of complexity to her story you know where she was doing a lot of modeling for years she did BDSM modeling and work and then she actually did a lot of film work particularly loops with her partner Dashiel who was a black man in the industry but she felt particularly um, exploited by some of the white producers. And we talked about this film's um, sex world that she uh, was in. It was a, a pretty major film during the period. Um, and it starred uh, John Leslie, who's uh, recently passed. And I had spoken to him, though, years ago about it when I was starting my research. And for him, it was all fun. Um, but for Desiree, it was a little hurtful because... Um, in this film, the premise is, you know, kind of like um, uh, Westworld, that it, it um, you know, it creates a kind of sexual satire of there is this, um, you know, architecture to a um, uh, escapist world where people can have um, sex without any consequences, a kind of pornotopia, which was is like porn central right. fantasy, right? And she is a paying guest who's supposed to get her fantasy, but she ends up being put together with the most racist man in the room who John Leslie plays with like a lot of pleasure, you know, just kind of being the most obnoxious, you know, most Archie Bunker um, person (laughs) you can imagine. And she's got to convince him that, you know, she is desirable and, you know, and he is really disgusted by her and rejecting her, but eventually gets um, seduced by her and then is convinced, you know, that, you know, Black women are for her. She's in love, wants to follow her. And so he does go through this conversion. But it's actually a really kind of shocking and disturbing scene um, when they're speaking to each other. Um, And 
you know, he's saying, you know, I don't like the dark meat at Thanksgiving. I want the white meat. And, um, you know, and she's singing in this kind of talking in this very sing-songy, rhymy voice, which I talk about as being part of the soul aesthetic, too, that she's using almost this kind of musical, um, you know, hypnotic, magical quality to her her, um, performance to say, you know, um, between my thighs is where my rhythm lies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this kind of imagination of, you know, the special power that black women have. And, um, you know, you know you want it. Don't even act like, you know, you don't. This kind of myth that black, um, that white men weren't really interested in black women and black women pushed themselves on white men. It's also been really central since slavery. Um, right. So it really operates on so many levels of, of fantasy and myth about um, how the dynamic between um, white men and black women has proceeded and should proceed. Um, but she felt really that um, it was an unfortunate representation. And like, why couldn't they just kind of meet as equals? You know, why couldn't they just find each other and discover this? You know, it's something that it, it, as you're describing that it reminds me of the the film Fort Apache, the Bronx, which we we talked about on the show previously. And its opening scene is with Pam Greer kind of stepping out of this this bombed out Bronx landscape. And she is not really represented as a human. She's sort of there as this almost like primal spirit, like incantation speaking in this very like rhythmic way and and seducing two cops. These stereotypes moved back and forth Mm -hmm. between all media, right? Like I think there's a way, maybe in the contemporary moment, that like porn is uniquely seen as... Uh, a profoundly racist medium. And I would argue that there is much of porn in the contemporary moment and in that moment that mm-hmm. expressed racist tropes and ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is true across all of the media. And I, maybe what's unique about the 70s is it's a little, that interplay between, and that 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 there's less of a boundary maybe mm-hmm. between the genre films and porn and sort of like, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly true, but that's one of the things that we're, we're, we're dancing around on the show is like, was this a time where, you know, the range of possibility was a little more open because the boundaries between these kinds of media was a, a little more blurred. The, just yeah. the fact that you see porn representing or gesturing at um, black militancy or, you know, trying to represent black sexuality as influenced by the Panthers and how they dressed mm-hmm. and their vibe. It's... Mm-hmm. Um, it's complicated, right? You can't just say, well, this this was a set of racist ideas. As you said, it's embedded in this this right. historic... Right. And I think you said sense. it earlier, you know, um, fluidity. And this is a moment where sex is, you know, fluid in so many areas of um, politics, economy, and culture at the time. And we see it in print media and Hollywood and porn, um, you know, and I think that it's also a moment where you have new technologies and new legal frameworks that are changing the way that people are watching porn and, you know, moving from spaces where they might have been ultimately segregated into, um, you know, interracial spaces and intergender spaces and, you know, um, queer and straight spaces, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and just a lot of mobility in terms of the consumption and the production and the, the kind of market, a lot of mobility and fluidity in terms of where people are, um, 
um, situated, you know, moving from um, feature length to loop to other kinds of sex work, BDSM, um, swinging parties, um, you know, to radical activist groups, to, you know, all kinds mm -hmm. of um, spaces. And I think that that's one of the things that's so interesting and, you know, about the 70s was, um, as you mentioned, this kind of um, sense of openness and possibility. And so while, um, you know, we certainly can critique the kind of recirculation of racist tropes, I think what's interesting is that they come to represent the kind of that moment in a very interesting way. Um, you know, that's definitely a change from earlier times and different from what we see in the 80s and 90s and later. Um, so as a historian, I think it's just a really fascinating moment to think about um, the golden age and when a lot of these things were coming to the fore for the first time because they had been illegal and so underground. And so how do, you know, people react and, and how do people create when things are kind of more above ground, still, still illicit in many ways, definitely seen mm -hmm. as deviant, still um, criminalized, but also, mm -hmm. you know, much more open. And I think think that um, these films exposed a, a real fear, um, but also genuine um, desire to incorporate Black people um, into, you know, a kind of American sexual fantasy and culture, and um, to admit that, that it's always been there, you know, but we're just trying to, we being, you know, the sexual culture creators at the time, we're really trying to figure out how to do it in a way that, um, both captures the exciting autonomy that Black people are asserting at the same time, um, trying to grapple with our own discomfort of that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that ultimately, though, Black women are, um, you know, very important actors in this period, but they didn't control um, much of the means of production, you know, and I think that yeah. um, that's we don't see that till much later and it's still very always marginalized for black women. Um, and if anybody, you know, it's black men who get to have more of a role, but where, what we do see they ha have power is in their performances. And I, that's why I think that people like, um, you know, Desiree West and the many, many unnamed actresses who appear on these loops that we will never know their names, but I think that they leave this really interesting legacy that I tried to point out in the book that I think it wasn't a, a recent invention that Black women are asserting agency in their performances in porn. It's always been there. Um, and I think that they are highly aware of themselves as, you know, these kind of sexual myths and objects and um, try to seek to use that. They try to explode those myths at the same time that they um, hope to capitalize on them. They, you know, really just try to kind of hustle them uh, for their own purposes. But also they, they're imagining that there are other Black people in that audience who are suddenly going to be um, able to see themselves on the big screen. I am so sorry to say we have to say goodbye to you for this show. I hope we can bring you back. Thank you so much, Mireille. You can learn more about her and her work, folks. You can go read her book, Taste for Brown Sugar. Uh, you can also follow her on Twitter at Dr. Mireille. That's at Dr. M-I-R-E-I-L-L-E. So the homework assignment for this week was Hustling, a 1975 made-for-TV movie based on the reporting by one Gail Sheehy 
who is a journalist we have uh, talked about in terms of our field pieces. We read one by her, and we also uh, know for a fact that she is the inspiration for Sandra Washington, who is the journalist character on The Deuce. Knowing that there is a fair degree of crossover between Hustling, Gail Sheehy, and The Deuce, it seems strange when I was watching this movie that it appeared that certain things seem to be, if not plagiarized, very closely related and or inspired. Like in, in the way that Marvin Gaye and Blurred Lines uh, got a little bit too close for comfort and lawsuits ensued. Yeah, it is so especially close. because Gail She was also involved in yeah. hustling. She mm-hmm. was a consultant. And hustling it is not the made for TV movie that I thought it was going to be. Like I expected it to be much more in the genre of like girl run away goes astray. Right. It's actually really a story about how a journalist gets into the life of somebody. And and also a journalist portrayed by Lee Remick, who, you know, yeah. is, if is, going... is not um, like a hard-boiled character type. No. She's, you know, no. not a whip-smart career girl making her move on the way up type either. She's just stone cold. Did Gail Sheehy, when she was consulting, ask who, who should play her? It, have you ever done the game where you're like, well, if I were in a movie, who would play me? You know, that kind of thing. And I, I have feel... my answer. It's embarrassing, but I do. Oh, I'm what's your answer? It, what's yes. your answer? Oh, no. no, 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 no. That's my secret. But yeah, you, I, I don't know if Gail Sheehy decided that this is who it should be. I don't uh, know, but, but it's... it has felt like that. Because I'm like, if someone pick Lee Remick, they're literally picking the least approachable. Um, second only, I think, in this era to Faye Dunaway, the least approachable person. Um, she is so Hitchcock blondie in, an, in a post-Hitchcock blonde era. I remember her most as playing the Snow Queen from the fairy tale theater Shelley Duvall series. Oh my gosh. She is the Snow Queen to me. And she was, uh, she's so far away from the Frank Capra kind of, you know, like as you see now in the Coen brothers with like Jennifer Jason Leigh-esque character, but it's a different version of kind of like a cartoon journalist. Not quite Noel Neal and Superman either. Somewhere skirting in the middle, but still so of out of place. representation of journalism that I don't often see uh, a woman journalist mm-hmm. play. Usually, I, you know, you're either going to play somebody who's so emotionally over-involved and overwrought in the lives of the people that they're covering, right. you'll see that kind of thing, or, you know, the equally untruthful, but actually much more fun to watch, sort of like very 30 screwball kind of thing. We have really a film told through her eyes, and as a result, it, it lacks a lot of the sort of cautionary tale elements um, that this genre usually relies on. And and the sensationalism of it um, is actually, or the horror of it is really reserved for the violence. Yeah. There's very little sexuality in this film. There's very little sexualizing going on in this film. Even the violence isn't sexualized. It's just sort of horrific and cold Yeah, they, and they cut away from it. I mean, like the, the, villain, the villains in this piece are either, you know, like this Dr. Claw-like pimp who you never really see. It's almost, it's like a cross between Dr. Claw and all the bad guys in E.T. where it's all just like shadows and specters and you don't, you know they exist, but you're not, you don't know anything else about them. And then there's also the surrogate, like in the form of this lawyer. The pimp's lawyer. The pimp's lawyer, who basically, he appears to be kind of part ATM, part lawyer, part conciliary, all these different things wrapped up in one. And one of the few times- A very low-key enforcer, I mean. Yeah, yeah. And one of the few times I've I've ever seen in a narrative involving sex work, the idea of where does the money go? And how does the pimp actually, quote unquote, take care of things? And it was the much narrative more... sort of 
turns on the revelation in the courtroom while the lead sex worker character Wanda is consulting this character, the the, the lawyer, the pimp lawyer slash conciliary slash enforcer. Um, she's facing a pretty steep fine uh, for having beat up a bus driver. <laughs> a group of uh, ladies going out to the theater had asked to go ask Wanda how much and when that became as humiliating as it sounds, you know, she lashed out at him and was charged with assault. Um, but she thinks, you know, this is going to be a problem. I've been in and out of court. I think she had 27 loitering arrests under her belt by the time this happened. And so she thinks, you know, this is what the lawyer's for. He's just going to pay the fine, right? And she finds out that her pimp actually wants her to go to Rikers Island and do time. A sword. You go do a damn fool thing like that for me. I don't like no one hassling me. You're a pro. You're used to being hassled. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> only want to get paid for it. Could mean a three, four hundred dollar fine, depending on what side of the bed his honor got up on this morning. Oh, I'll make it up. Sweet knows all I need. It's a couple good nights. Sure he knows. The only problem is he hasn't got it. Wine, fifty dollars. He didn't send the money? Wanda, do I have to explain? Lately, you've been in more than you're out when you don't work. It ain't my fault. I, I can't help it. There's a, there's a squeeze of things that You get picked up on an assault charge. That's not smart. I give Sweet plenty. 5000 a month last year. Where is it? Now, what kind of talk is that? You know Sweet's got heavy expenses. It's not an easy business. He has to compete. Now, he says you better plead guilty and take the time. I hate going to no Rikers Island. I hate that stinking place. Talking about a couple of weeks at the most. Nothing's that bad for a couple of weeks. It's <laughs> easy for him to say, sitting around at Willie's watching the Knicks on TV. It's the journalist who intervenes and pays the fine for her, which sort of sets into motion the, the very transactional nature of their relationship, but also the the indebtedness that Wanda has to to the pimp and this enforcer character, how they use that as leverage to keep her from talking to the journalist even. Right, and uh, did, did they say why the pimp wants her to go to Rikers? It's not clear. Um, also, it really is confusing because it, it made it seem like there was a choice between you know paying the fine or going to Rikers, but then the judge sentences her to both a fine and going to Rikers. And, and there's also no sort of fear hanging over her after that moment in any kind of narrative way that she's going to go to Rikers. That's just sort of in the past. So it's a little, the mechanics of the, the legal system in hustling are a little strange in that regard. They're very fully realized, though, when it comes to the actual policing of prostitution. And one of the things that the journalist who's in this iteration of the Gail Sheehy being fictionalized uh, on television. She's in this, in Hustling, she's known as Fran Morrison. <laughs> and sorry. Fran Morrison, it's really terrible. It just sounds bad coming out of or your like, mouth. But I mean, maybe she was a backup singer on Moondance. You never know. I don't know. She she is hanging out in this wonderful evening with all of the sex workers where they're in a cab zooming around 
the Times Square area and like the the way that this shot actually really evoked sex in the city yes, for me. The, the anal sex scene up the butt girl yes, that scene exactly yeah. the four of them sitting in the back of the cab and also a time when four people could much more comfortably fit in the back of a yellow cab um, they the cab driver kicks them out and he's sick of their sightseeing and then a cop van rolls up the cop the party bus van that we've seen many times before on the Deuce and other other representations <laughs> of time yeah and uh, and they all get loaded in and charged with loitering and the journalist fights back and actually gets them released. She knows more than all them uniform clowns put together. <laughs> what business you got? <laughs> Picking up girls when they ain't work? Don't you bombers know? If you get this, I'm just losing all right. Is it? What? Well, you know, against all rights. Yes, violate the Fourteenth Amendment. How how does that go again? Well, um, the Fourteenth Amendment says that the the police can't arbitrarily or capriciously, you know what I mean, um, deprive you of your life or liberty without what's called due process of law, and it guarantees you, you know. Um, equal protection under the law. That, in other words, all that means is that no group of people, say blacks, homosexuals, prostitutes, whatever, can be arrested and treated differently just because they're members of that group. That's all. I'll be damned. How come I got to be 22 years old and nobody ever told me none of that? Yeah. How the hell come? There's nothing wrong with the Constitution, honey, but who's got time to read it? The journalist is absolutely right that the loitering statute uh, that they were charged under uh, is unconstitutional. Um, in the 70s, there was a pretty foundational loitering case that made it to the Supreme Court, Papa Christa versus Jacksonville. And that found a vagrancy ordinance in Jacksonville, Florida, which was also a kind of a loitering ordinance to be unconstitutionally vague. And so here we are in 1975. This law is still being enforced in New York. It's still being enforced in New York to this day. Um, so the, the, one of the, the things we find out about the loitering policing uh, in an earlier scene, which is a, in a city planning meeting, we spend a lot of time in city planning meetings in this for a made-for-TV movie. I did not expect that. Uh, it's one of those kind of we need to clean up Times Square community meetings. And the factoid has dropped that um, 500 loitering arrests have been made in three months in this area. Just compare that to the present day. We right. know that the NYPD between, this is the most recent figures that I have, uh, between 2012 and 2015, they arrested and charged 1,300 people with loitering. It's enforced in the same ways that you see in Hustling and also in The Deuce where you know people are literally just out getting a hot dog, getting a coffee, walking from one place to another, and they get picked up and charged. Because you know if you're a sex worker at all, then like you're always working, right? Everywhere you go. The scenes with Fran Morrison, a.k.a. Gail She, and her editor, I thought were also quite delightful. Um, we've talked a lot about sort of the ethics of acquiring sex workers as sources. Um, and we this What's the word to use? The journalism. Journalism, yeah. I mean, journalism, you know, there are ways to, to work with sex workers as sources that are not journalism. Journalism here defined as posing as 
a customer or somebody who's otherwise interested in, you know, being around sex workers for pay um, to get access to them and then later revealing that you're a journalist or never revealing that you're a journalist. And and some of the tenets of journalism are at play in hustling. The cops tell the journalists that, you know, you can't trust the sex workers and they make stuff up all the time or their pimps are going to, you know, prevent them from talking to them, which is then sometimes used as an excuse to be deceptive. Um, but in this case, uh, Fran Morrison, aka Gail She, is like pretty upfront, busts out her tape recorder, talks about what she's doing, identifies who she is. But it's the scenes with the editor, I think, that get more into the sort of the ethical quandaries where, you know, when she pitches him the story that she wants to do about prostitution in his office, he was like, but we just did a story on the black middle class. I don't want to follow that up with this. And what he means by that isn't that was a classy story and this is a trashy one. What he means is we've already talked about black people. We don't need to do it again. Besides, we just ran that big spread last month on the new black middle class. I don't want to follow it with this. Well, what makes you think this scene is black? Would you be surprised to hear that the majority of the girls on the street are white? From Midwest cities, the school dropouts all come here to be models, find a rich man, same old dream. The reason why it felt so much was pulled from this film for, uh, for the deuce is mostly in the form of Wanda's scene. Wanda is the main sex worker that we get to know. And so much of Maggie Gyllenhaal's character, Candy, appears to be kind of ripped from the headlines of this made-for-TV film, like, you know, right down to costuming and certain lines that she says and the fact that she's an independent yes. um, and, you know, things like that. I mean, I, it just, she has to have seen it. And if not, then someone has to have seen it and has been directing this, this style of acting. Um, the only difference How is that How would not even the art people not look at it, right? I don't know. I mean, just but like, for visual what, reference. Like, what, I'm sure that they watched this. Somebody right. involved with the deuce has seen this. Had to, yeah. And I mean, the only, the only very big difference, I think, between Wanda and Candy is Wanda seems a lot more wounded, like kind of viscerally wounded in some ways. Like less in Candy control does. of her emotions. That's yeah. like a way that we might think that she's wounded. There, there, there's like a little bit of this kind of wildness in Wanda that doesn't seem to exist in Candy. Um, now that again could be uh, like, you know, the 1970s version of what, you know, what they think a sex worker is, but it just, that's the and only main difference. I don't know if Wanda is even supposed to be the sort of girl in distress who's the cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. There is another sex there is another one who's a straight who up cautionary tale. Great yeah. violence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And who he like, you know, talks about dressing up as like a girl, like a younger girl on the street. Um, so it's, you know, Wanda gets to sort of do the candy role of being the independent, of being the one who has sort of a mind and thoughts of her own right. um, versus the other girls who, other than that bar scene, are sort of not so differentiated from one another. Um, there are scenes that just feel really lifted, like that, the the police station scene. Yeah, the police station scene, absolutely. Because we have the field piece, right, where, where that is Gail Sheehy's field piece where she's talking basically about like the feral new breed right oh yeah the new breed of of the violent sex worker who's gonna you know not only have sex with you but rob you or throw acid on your face like there, there's legitimately way more violence between the workers themselves in in hustling than there is in any like any of the deuce you get you get a little bit of whining but not you know out and out brawling there's like a there's like a territorial brawl in the when middle Wanda of hustling. When Wanda beats somebody up, we see her beat them up. When her pimp beats someone up, 
-hmm. it's in mysterious silhouette. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are choices. Yeah. These are definitely choices. Yeah. And maybe, I don't think it's just to make it a little more PG. You know, this is after kind of the end of the family viewing hour. This is mm-hmm. after some of the backlash to made-for-TV movies as being right. too sexual and too violent, too well, you dangerous can't get for a, children. America's always been more pro-violence than pro-sex in terms of what actually appears in both movies and television, and this is no different. I mean, they're, they have they they have no illusions of trying to make it seem like a not less violent world. They seem to have a lot of making it into a less explicitly sexual world. It's almost as if, like, you know, these women um, aren't even really doing sex work. Like mostly what we see them doing is being poor and fighting each other other and getting thrown out of restaurants and being broke. And And looking over their shoulder for their pimps. And in the case of Dee Dee, who's the one who ends up, who's the one who's like the most cautionary tale. She's the one who ends up, she's the one who ends up dead. She's the one who ends up dead and alone in an abandoned building that may never actually get fully built in the middle of this kind of transitional Times Square area. This is one business that doesn't relish publicity. Yeah. I'm beginning to understand why. You know what they take in at the Mona Lisa in an average week? I figured it out on the way over here. $20,000. Well, I'll match that. You take 200,000 prostitutes in the United States today, and the lowest estimate, six transactions a day, and the lowest figure, $20. And you come up with around $7 billion a year. That is 10 times the budget of the Justice Department. I just don't get it. Get what? Oh, the whole logic of law enforcement. You don't arrest the pimps, you don't arrest the johns, you don't touch the owners of these fleabag hotels, but you're going to beat this monolith by busting Wanda and Dee Dee and 40 other girls a night and tossing them in the bullpen. If you wanted to stop illegal racetrack gambling, would you put the racehorses in jail? <laughs> this character is expressing a politics around prostitution that is more ambiguous, uh, maybe to us, but at the time feels like pretty true to where somebody who's digging into this as a woman might land, which is, oh my God, all of these guys who are not going to jail um, are making all this money off these women. So she's not even talking about the customers. She's talking about the people who are exploiting the fact that this is a criminalized industry. And so the women don't have the ability to like rent, uh, go to a regular hotel and not get thrown out. That there are people who are, are basically, you know, a, a layer of financial predation on top of the sex industry. That's who she's actually investigating. Every name comes out of the records. Every bank, every insurance company. That's a Park Avenue doctor. That is a charity organization. And that is the lawyer who fronts for the mob in the peep show rackets. And that one? That's the widow of a Supreme Court judge. There, there are some scenes, they are not spotlight level, but there's some intense public records acquisition in this. <laughs> I was really amused by. I mean, this is not about, I, I mean, initially she's like, I want to know why these women uh, are doing it, but she really moves away from that and, and is more interested in sort of like, well, how is this sort of situated in the city and, and anticipates pushback from her editor on that and even, you know, loses a boyfriend over those kinds of inquiries. It's intense. Yeah, the boyfriend is reliant on one of the people whose names she uncovers as being part of like who is getting rich off the off off the work of these women. Um, and in the back of my mind, I always keep on saying the elephant in the room that is like if you decriminalize sex work, then all of these 
points of problem behavior would be eradicated. But of course, the, the movie is not going to go there. <laughs> the movie's, no, yeah. no. And, and I don't fault it for go, not going there because I think it goes there as much as it, it can go there. I mean, we know in New York at the time, um, this isn't legible in the film in any way, but it's certainly something that the real Gail she would have known about because one of her New York Magazine colleagues, Gloria Steinem, was covering these kinds of things. Um, you know, the women's movement at this time was just starting to reckon with, with prostitution as part of its politics, but it wasn't doing it in an anti-prostitution way necessarily. There was a, a gathering of, of women's rights and feminist activists uh, at Judson Church, which is kind of around West 4th Street uh, in the West Village. and. Kate Millett has written about this in, in her book, The Prostitution Papers. Um, the fact that the women there wanted to talk about prostitution, but they didn't actually invite any prostitutes, and then prostitutes crashed the meeting. You know, why are you talking about us symbolically? Like, we're right here. Like, you can listen to us. Um, and so there was a, a kind of a, an abstraction around prostitution, you know, that, oh, these are the most oppressed amongst us, but, you know, also still placing the oppression of prostitution along the lines of the oppression of women in marriage, the oppression yeah. of women under compulsory heterosexuality, all mm -hmm. of these different oppressions. That's more nuanced than than I would expect of something today. And but I think that that's the nuance and the ambiguity we're seeing as, as, a, as a result of that being where the public conversation was in New York in particular. And that kind of brings me to a, kind of a segue to the next week homework. In tribute to the big gay episode that was the Deuce episode four, I am assigning a movie and a television show that will give you insight into how the people of the 70s were experiencing the gay life. Um, the first is a very famous film, especially if you've ever seen The Cellulite Closet, called The Boys in the Band, which was directed by William Friedkin, none other than the same person who directed The Exorcist, and eventually, in a total 180, Cruising, which we have mentioned a couple times and we will mention much more. And then there's mud. And then there's mud. And then there's mud. And then there's mud. For a comedic spin on the gay experience, um, I am recommending uh, episode 9, season 6 of Maud, um, which is called The Gay Bar, and it is absolutely drop-dead hysterical. It is one of the more nuanced showings of how someone can fight back against the prejudicial attitudes of um, kind of suburban suburban America against the gay lifestyle. It's very much, oh, this gay bar is moving in. What will we do? Hair is getting pulled out. Something quite hard, something quite light. Yes. Go out and enjoy. Oh yeah, The Boys in the Band is uncomfortable, if I hadn't made that clear. It is an uncomfortable movie uh, about a party that you probably wouldn't want to attend. This has been Terrific City. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And there you can also leave us a review, which is so great. It also helps people find the show. Uh, please tell your friends. If you don't want to leave a review, that's fine. You can take it a little more private. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon so that we can bring you more seasons of Terrific City. You can do that and also find our show notes at terrific.city. You can find us on Twitter at TerrificCityPod and on Instagram at TerrificCity. You can also call us, truly leave a message at 347-380-5450 and we may play it on a future episode. And with that, we'll say so, so long, long from, from Terrific, Terrific City. City.
I thought we were almost finished. Good golly, Miss Molly.